Happy Easter, everybody. That's <laughs> a little bit better. So uh, my name is Ken Weitzma. I get to work with the greatest staff uh, that you could ever imagine. And it's kind of my privilege to be here with you this morning on Easter Sunday. Um, I was thinking about something, uh, you know, it's kind of fun having a second service because I feel like the first service was a big swing and a miss and um, wasn't that good. So you guys are good that you're here um, for the second service. But so what's cool about a second service, you kind of get to think things over and I was kind of thinking about it and it's really interesting. Um, I think we fall into a trap with Easter, maybe even Christmas, that, that's real subtle but it completely robs the, the obvious of its meaning. And the obvious of Easter is that Christ is risen, he's out of the grave, and therefore we're, it's a happy day, that's pastels, and, and we're going to celebrate. Okay, that's the obvious, right? I mean, kind of acquainted with that. But here's the interesting thing. We only celebrate things that are relevant to us. Um, Jesus being a savior doesn't really mean much if we don't really feel like we need to be saved from anything. Um, Jesus being a doctor for the sick doesn't really mean much unless we actually feel like we're in need of something that we don't already have, that we're kind of sick in some sense. Um, Jesus offering hope doesn't really mean much if we don't really care. Um, life isn't really bad right now to where we actually yearn and long and desire for something different. And so the real interesting thing about all this stuff of who Jesus Christ is, is that we first have to understand where we are in, relation to, in relationship to that. And so Jesus, in the book of Revelation, talks to a church and he says, look, uh, it's this crazy thing is going on. You guys are all getting together and having a cool little club and, and you're all kind of, you know, um, looking good and, and presenting well and, 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 and you got all this cool stuff going on and you think you've got it all together, you think you're rich, you think you don't need anything and because of that, I'm on the outside, the margin of your little community um, and you're not really inviting me in. Like I'm not really a vital part of, of your gathering and so here's the deal, and this is what Jesus says, and it's incredibly relevant. He says, look, if you really understood what was going on beneath those nice clothes, um, what's really going on is that you're naked, and you're blind, you don't know your own way, you're lost, and you're poor, like you're needy, you are dependent, you're vulnerable, you're poor. If you really understood what the situation is, you're naked, you're blind, you're poor, and in recognizing that, all of a sudden, I would be of so much more importance to you, you would be desperate to call me into your, your, your meeting, and that's the way it should be. That your worship of me, your desperation for me, really comes from a recognition of, of who you really are and where you really are. And so, what I kind of realized after last service is, is I fell into this trap of Easter Sunday. Boy, I, I got to talk about how wonderful this is that Christ has risen and, and we need to celebrate that. But it's really easy to miss the thing that drives that whole scenario. The, the thing that drives it is that, that he's so wonderful. He's so um, great. The fact that he died for us is, is so amazing because the grace that comes from that is so utterly unbelievable and necessary. Um, so we've got all our nice clothes on. It's Easter. We're all here. Um, you know, but we're naked and we're blind and we're poor and we're struggling in our marriages. We're struggling with kids that we're, we're scared over. 
We're struggling with health problems. We're struggling with finances. We're struggling with old age and we're afraid of life and we're afraid of culture and we're afraid of safety. And sometimes at the end of the day, um, we just feel like we are utterly, utterly unable to pull ourselves out of whatever we're going through, whether it's circumstances or emotions. And we are there, and, and a lot of you maybe resonate with that. Um, we're not the people we wish we were. I'm, I'm not the guy I wish I was. I mean, I know the guy I wish I was, but every day I don't quite live up to the guy that I wish I was. Um, but I pretend that I am the guy that I wish I was, you know, because that's real easy, if any of you know how that goes. Um, yeah, so Jesus would come, I think, this morning. He would look at us and he would wait until we were willing to be honest and poor in spirit and recognize that where we're starting from gives us an idea of where he's coming into. So you take one data point and you can't really figure out much from it, can you? But you all of a sudden put in some, something else there and you're able to contrast the two and draw a comparison and the one is able to look so different than the other and now you understand the context. And so if we just come in this morning and say, hey, let's have a great time, it's Easter. It's a good excuse to go spend a lot of money on lunch and you know maybe there's some good old movies on and, and find some Easter, whatever. Like, but there's no meaning to that. There's no context to that. And until we understand why Christ came and why it matters. Because this world without Christ is utterly without hope. You and I without Christ are utterly without hope. So I think that there's three categories of people that, that are in here this morning. There's a lot of people that struggle with what I struggle with. You've been around Christianity enough now that in some sense you're inoculated to ever hearing it fresh. And so you just go through the motions and yeah, yeah, that's, I know those verses and I know those ideas and, and you're kind of immune to it and you got a little wall up. And then there's some of you that are here that don't want to be here. You're here against your will and you've got a wall up and that's just what it is. And then there's, there, there might be some of you in the middle that are actually like, man, I really do need something. I'm hungry. I, I, it matters to me. If there's hope out there, if there's joy out there, I'm desperate to know it. I'm desperate to have it. And, and those are the people maybe this morning that, that this is all about, that what I have to, sh to share, it's, it's for you, um, kind of in that middle. Um, so let's go ahead and pray, and, and maybe, just maybe, God will do more than just let us go through this morning talking to people, um, going out to eat, and checking the check boxes, but actually... Uh, meet us in some, in some deep place where we really exist and where we really are naked and blind and poor. Father, um, let us see ourselves more clearly. The same cries that we were pouring out to you last night on our bed in tears, let those be here this morning so that we actually might hear or understand or to think or to wrestle with how you would want to answer those tears, what you'd have to say to those cries. And, and through all of this, Father, let, let your son be magnified. Let, let the fact that he died, was willing to die for us, be an amazing thing. And that through all of that, your plan, 
that you put into place and how you are going to rescue us, that you are a, a redeemer, God, a God who reaches out your arm, your mighty arm, and saves his people, that you do not fail us. I mean, you get the glory as we see, hopefully see some of what's going on. We pray that in Christ's name, amen. Um, I went and grabbed, one of the things I do to have it is when I get a little lost, like, okay, I don't know where I'm at. I, I usually just reach for one of two authors and I just start reading. It's actually an interesting thing. Um, I do it with scripture a lot. I, I break the rules. You're not supposed to just take scripture and plop it open and just start reading, but I do. Um, and then I do it with C.S. Lewis and, and Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And I just start reading until things start making sense. And so in between services, I went and grabbed off the book cart. It's a handy little book cart. You guys can go find it in between services. I grabbed The Weight of Glory, uh, C.S. Lewis' Weight of Glory, and just started reading the introduction here to this sermon that C.S. Lewis preached. And it ties in really well. And so I think we're just going to start here and then see where it takes us. But listen to what C.S. Lewis writes. He says this, If you ask 20 good men today what they thought the highest of the virtues 19 of them would reply, unselfishness. If I took 20 mature people out here and said, what, what's the highest of the virtues? What Lewis is saying is that, that 19 would say, unselfishness. Sounds so, so right, doesn't it? Sounds so good. But if you'd asked almost any of the great Christians of old, he would have replied, love. You see what has happened? A negative term has been substituted for a positive term. And this is of more than philological importance, uh, the study of words. It's, it's deeper than that. The negative idea of unselfishness carries with it the suggestion, not primarily of securing good things for others, but of going without them ourselves, as if our abstinence and not their happiness was the important point. I do not think that this is the Christian virtue of love. The New Testament has lots to say about self-denial, but not about self-denial as an end in itself. We're caught up, I think, in Christianity with what I would call anorexic Christianity. That the idea is to suffer and to deny ourselves and to be really super obedient and to follow all the rules so that we can be a good little boy or a good little girl. And, and um, that works for a little while, but like the little kid as he grows up that begins to kind of go, wait a second, <laughs> do I have a choice in this? Like, why do we do this? And maybe I can just say no and, and choose a different way because this doesn't really make sense to me. So we have this truncated view of abstinence and self-denial as its own end, okay? And, and, that, and that's Christianity, and I think it lasts for a while until um, a lot of guys begin to go, what's, what's really going on here? It's, it just doesn't compute, so I'm gonna check out, I'm gonna go a different way. Anorexic Christianity. I want you to turn to Hebrews, if you have your Bible, chapter 12, we're going to look at a passage that shows a different way. It defines faith for us. It shows us what this thing actually is, this life of faith, this, this path that we're supposed to take. And it is so far different from that idea of just radical self-denial with kind of no purpose to it. 
Listen to what it says in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1, starting in verse 1. We're going to show you verse 2, the crux verse here. But in verse 1 it says this, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, of examples, of, of people to follow, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Okay, there it is, self-denial. Okay, since, since we got these good examples in our life, like these heroes, let us, let us run this race marked out for us with perseverance, which means what? Why do we always use the, met, the metaphor of a, of a marathon? We use it because it's like everyone knows it's not easy. I mean, you don't say marathon and think, oh, breeze, all at the same time. Like the definition of marathon is, is difficult and painful and arduous. And so when we talk of like endurance and perseverance, you know, the, the writer of the Hebrews is saying, okay, um, it's time to lace up and run that race with endurance and perseverance. And that right away says, okay, this isn't an easy race. This is a marathon. It's a difficult thing. So our race, your race, my race, involves a, a level of denial and, and choosing to endure pain or suffering, to, to, to bear a cost, something that's not easy, okay, that doesn't come quite that natural, and we're supposed to endure and persevere. There it is. That's Christianity. Um, I read the second verse a lot sooner in the first verse. I'm going to wait just a little bit, and we're going to camp on this. Uh, and then we're going to read the second verse. Um, I really honestly believe this is the view of Christianity that most people have inherited. This, this kind of anorexic Christianity. It's all about self-denial as an end. My kids, when they don't like babysitters. Um, I don't I mean... I'm trying to think back. I probably hated babysitters too. I don't understand why my kids wouldn't like it. I get super excited, you know, and, and they just don't they, don't, they don't share the excitement. But they, I mean, little Sarah actually runs and like hides behind the couch. It's a really interesting stage she's getting into. They don't like babysitters. You want to know why? Because it's less good than having mom and dad there. It's a, it's a, a state of affairs that is less than, less desirable than, than it would be if, if it wasn't a babysitter and it was just back to normal. We treat Christ in America now as if he's a babysitter. We, we feel in our gut, whether we want to admit to it or not, that ay, 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 if I bring Christ into the picture, oh, it's like a babysitter. And it's less than, it's, it's not as good as. It, I wish it was the way it would be without Christ. It brings it down. It involves all the self-denial stuff. He's always kind of pushing and prodding for me to, to give things up or to, to bear some kind of uh, cross. And yeah, I just, I don't know about that. I don't like babysitters. Now here's an interesting thing that, that happens in, in our house. Um, the children's director at Antioch is a gal named Linda Van Voorst. I knew Linda, um, this is, I don't know if she's in here. She would probably hate this. I grew up and I would always run into like older people and they'd be like, oh, I knew you when, you know, like that kind of thing. You know what I'm talking about? 
<laughs> the only person I know in my life, like now, that I knew when, like in junior high, was Linda. So it's kind of a funny thing. Like, I remember when you were in junior high. Like, well, Linda was at this church I was at when I was in, in grad school, and she went from junior high to high school, and then I became her youth pastor, and then she went off to college, and I moved to Bend. And then she actually came out to Antioch the summer before we planted and helped us launch this church. I mean, who Antioch is is largely a byproduct of Linda. Linda is boundless energy, always positive, amazing person. And I knew her all the way back in junior high. Um, so anyways, Linda's the children's director at Antioch. My kids have grown up with Linda, okay? If Linda is coming over to the house, we've learned not to use the word babysitter because it doesn't matter. It's Linda's coming over to watch you tonight. And all the kids go crazy and start running around and doing cartwheels. I mean, literally, doing cartwheels. And go, ah, like, like, the, like Home Alone or something. I mean, just go crazy and make faith. And they get so super excited when Linda is coming over. Okay, why? What's the difference? I mean, she's, she's babysitting. Because she, she loves them. And because of that, it's a higher state of affairs than, than what would have been. It is a greater reality than if Linda wasn't in the picture. It's, it's kind of the opposite pole to, to the babysitter thing. Okay? The interesting thing about Christ is that Christ, if you read the Gospels, everything about him was healing and nurturing and uplifting and equipping and affirming and encouraging and, and saving and gracious and loving and tender. And it was all this thing that just brought up and, and made life so much better. Every single story. People were dying to get to him. The, the people that were beat up were dying to get to him. The people that were, were sick were dying to get to him. The people that were lost were dying to get to him. The untouchable people that had screwed their lives up so much that nobody else would even try him again because they'd, they'd like cried wolf way too many times. Jesus was willing to entertain them. The little kids. Like Jesus was the best politician ever, but he wasn't doing it for political reasons. Like he just dug little kids. You know, adults get out of the way. I like the kids better than you. You know, and bring them to, I mean, Jesus was this guy like, like Linda. Never thought about that before. Linda is very Christ-like. Um, he made, it was better. Yet we've, we've slowly adopted in this kind of very um, fundamentalistic, legalistic culture of the last hundred years, this rule-bound kind of idea that makes Christ more of this heavy, like in those old Shirley Temple movies, you know, the like the, the tutor, like the real harsh tutor lady, you know what I mean? Like, it's just like, ah, it's like worse than a babysitter. How has that happened? Lewis says we've taken and we've substituted this idea of self-denial, that, that the heart of Christianity is heaviness, rather than love, which is all about life-giving, breathing life into things. So Jesus says to the Pharisees, man, he's, he's just, ah, I'm never, my wife, I, he's pissed off. I'm not supposed to use that word, but he's, he's, he is. 
at the people that are, that are there to help other people. And instead of helping, they're doing the opposite of helping. They're actually loading them up and, and making it even worse. The, these people are like pack mules. Life is so heavy. The rules are so hard. They're so desperate, so needy. And the leaders, the shepherds of Israel, are coming. And their whole role is to help give life and to free people up, to set them free. And Jesus says they're just adding like, how much more can you carry? You can carry this? Sweet. I feel really good about myself. This is wonderful oppressing you. Like, this is, I love this power. And Jesus is so angry with it. He's like, you just don't even get it. You are making it feel like this. And that is so not what God put you here for. And Jesus says, in the opposite vein, come to me. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. Those people, you over here that have been burned by religion, that have been burned by pastors, that have been burned by people in authority in your life, and you are just beat down. Okay, look, you gotta somehow come out from underneath that and come find me because I'm not like that. I'm different and I will give you rest for your souls. Like, I will help lift that off you. And Jesus says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. When Jesus talks about himself as the good shepherd, you want to know what he was doing? He was juxtaposing that with the idea of the bad shepherd. And he's saying, look, man, you see what the bad is like. Here's what the good is like. The bad comes only to kill and to take life. But me, I've come that you may have life and have life to the full. I mean, I just, I want to find you. I want to grab you. I want to love you. I want to nurture you. I want you to have life because that's good and God created things to be good. And, and you sense this frustration with Jesus that's like, how, how over here are you missing the logic of this? Oh, you're using your power and, and your influence to pad yourself by oppressing other people. You're not even thinking about God. Oh, okay. Um, but how do other people not see this? It's so logical. God created things to be good. Life is good. Life to the full is good. And that's what I'm here for. I'm here to restore things. I'm here to reconcile things. I'm here to heal the wound that's been cut through sin into this world. I'm here to, you know, the whole thing I was talking about, I know who I wish I was and I know who I am. Look, the line between good and bad isn't between Democrats and Republicans or independents and Tea Partyists or Sarah Palin and Bill Maher. Um, it's, you know, politics is getting fun for me lately. Um, it's not, the line between good and evil isn't out here. Guess where it is? Solzhenitsyn said it so well. He says the line between good and evil runs right down the heart of every man and every woman. What Jesus Christ came to fix and to heal was this wound, this, this breach right here, to give life to that. So what, what's going on? How have we so radically missed this? Well, let me just read you that second verse in Hebrews first to show you that this view of Christianity, this anorexic Christianity really isn't real Christianity. Listen to what it says about Jesus. It says, okay, we, we're going to run this race, this costly race with perseverance, this race marked out for us. Now it says this, here's how this is going to happen. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus 
Let us focus on the finish line. Let us focus on the, the, the pace car. Let us focus on the example. Fix our eyes on Jesus Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and then he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Two pieces. You will naturally, if you don't focus on Christ, what? Grow weary and lose heart. Welcome to Christianity in America. Christianity in America is the story of those who have grown weary or lost heart. It's Christianity in America is Christianity without Christ. And Christianity without Christ has no foundation. It has no drive gear. It, it ultimately has no life. And it becomes heavy. And people find their way out of it. They lose heart and they grow weary. So we're supposed to fix our eyes on Christ instead so that we won't grow weary. We won't lose heart. And if we do that, what happens? Well, here's the fascinating thing. Jesus, who authored our faith and perfected our faith, did it all for what? We can put it on the screen with the words highlighted. He did it all motivated by joy. Oh, how very selfish of Jesus. All this time you thought he did it for you. He didn't, he did it for joy. It just doesn't seem right, does it? It'd be like saying, um, um, Mother Teresa, all this time I thought she really cared about those kids in Calcutta, but actually she got joy out of giving to those kids. Oh, how very selfish of her. Do you understand that joy is the natural byproduct of selflessness? It's it's, it's the right kind of pleasure. It's the pleasure that you're allowed to taste that works with selflessness. It's the consummation of selflessness. It's, it's, the, it's, it's why selflessness is so good. Selflessness without joy is stoicism. It, it's, it's heaviness. It's, 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 the, it's like golf lessons without ever getting to play golf or it's like piano lessons without ever getting to play at a at a concert or a recital it's like pre-marriage counseling but never getting to marry okay giving is fulfilled by made made complete by joy we take our kids we pack them in the car about once every other week and we go just randomly show up people's doors and, and the kids go bring them like cookies or ice cream or, and they knock on the door and they get to give it. It's just our way of trying to teach our kids that it's better to give than receive. Why is it better to give than to receive? Because the joy, the good of giving, giving, is ultimately better than the pleasure of always receiving or taking. Does that make sense? 
Joy is the fitting response for the right kind of sacrifice. Jesus did what God asked him to do. He got to sit down at the right hand of the Father to know that he helped all of humanity, to know that he was one with the Father's will, to know that what he did was good, and there's a joy that met him there that was so important to him that he was able to look at it and be motivated by it even as he went to the cross and died for our sins. We're supposed to follow that example. This is where it gets really shaky. If you grew up in a really legalistic church, you're going to start feeling really uncomfortable here. To follow Jesus is to also care so much about, be so excited about, focus so much on the joy that will come from us following God, being obedient, paying the cost, suffering, bearing the cross, uh, the calling that God puts in front of us, that that joy is so exciting that it would motivate us to endure and to persevere. To, To follow Christ, to follow his example, is to really get excited about and to really care about your own joy. The godly joy, the real joy, the appropriate joy, the right joy, the joy that God has promised. Because everywhere in Scripture, there's always the promise of joy. Paul, when he says, uh, I, I got excited about suffering. Because in that suffering, I came to know Christ that much more. I went through what he went through, and I got it. I got it, and I knew him so much better, and that fellowship was so sweet. So even when Paul says, look, I I counted it a privilege to suffer in the name of Christ, he wasn't doing it because he was like, heap it on, I like pain. I'm a sadist, more pain, more pain, more pain. I just like pain. That wasn't what Paul was saying. Paul was saying that pain becomes purposeful and helps me arrive at somewhere good And I I, I really like that good spot. Jesus said, the last, the first shall be last and the last shall be what? The last shall be first. He says, if you lose, if you seek your own life, if you kind of like hunt for it, work for it, you will lose your life. But if you lose your life for my sake, you will find it. You see, Jesus was the author and perfecter of faith. And faith is trusting God that even though it's illogical sometimes, even though we can't see it, that if we follow him, if we obey him, if we submit to him, if we go that road, if we pay that cost, that ultimately we arrive somewhere better than we would have been otherwise. Does that make sense? God has promised that that he created everything for good and that he has the power, the strength, and the character to fulfill his promises. And so faith is really saying, okay, I'll bank on that. I will put my hands out and I will surrender. I will die to my own self-interest, die to my own way and follow your way. It won't be my sovereignty, my ownership. It'll be yours. I'll give my life away and trust that you're gonna give it back to me better than I would have had it otherwise. The essence of faith comes in trusting 
that God really is a good God and will give us a joy that makes all of the pain and all the suffering worth the investment. Jesus authored the faith here. And he, he calls us to follow. He says, pick up your cross and follow me. See, if you're gonna, if you're gonna follow Christ, you have to follow him this way, trusting that it's the right way, that it is good, that, that, that he knows what he's talking about, that it's justified. And if we do anything else, then we're not really walking in faith. So here's a couple things. Um, we, we sometimes fall this way and we think that joy is bad. That's what I was talking about earlier. And it came from Immanuel Kant and the Stoics. And they thought this. They thought if you naturally are inclined to do something and you don't have to force yourself to do that good act, then there's really no moral value to that decision. You just did what you were inclined to do. And so they defined morality, moral worth, as exercising the will to do something different than what you'd feel like doing, but you, you exercise the will anyways. Wow, that's really moral. But guess what? By that definition of morality, Jesus wouldn't really be that great of a guy. Because Jesus says, I always said what the Father gave me to say. I always did what the Father wanted me to do. My desire was to do his will. What I wanted, what I actually wanted, I'm so conformed such that my feelings are natural to do what God wants me to do. I don't have to force myself over here all the time. I actually want to please God. Ah, well, how does that work on, on the Kantian system of, of ethics? And what Christ is teaching us is that as we mature and become more Christ-like, Instead of wanting to sin, instead of envying sinners, instead of wanting to run away from God, our desires would actually be shaped such that what we want to do is, is obey God, to honor God. My daughters can stomp their feet and do what I tell them. That, that actually doesn't make me feel that great. But according to Kant, that's a wonderful moral act. I want my kids to grow into a morality and a, a maturity where when I ask something, even if it wasn't what they would choose, their desire is such to please me and to honor me that they would naturally do it and do it with a cheerful face. Does that make sense? So on this side, there's just this like, joy is a bad thing. It's a selfish thing. And we just got to do stuff to do it because it's right. It's that abstinence that C.S. Lewis was talking about. And we will grow weary and we will lose heart because that's not following Christ. It's not understanding that there's something good we're hoping for, a future reward, a future reality, a God that's waiting to meet us, blessings and rewards that he's going to give us in this life and in the next, that, that somehow we're working in tandem with God and that our investment, our pain, our, our suffering, our trials, the cost is a good investment. Um, it doesn't work on that side. The other side is this. What I talked about with Christ's sufferings was, uh, I think sometimes we do this sadist route now. So he had anorexic Christianity, and now it's sadistic Christianity. That, that it's like aesthetic. It's, it's like we value pain for the sake of pain. Why? Because it really makes us feel proud. Look at my life. Look at how much I suffer in the name of Christ compared to you. I know a lot of 20-somethings that go this route, and they really want, what they're really trying to do is shame their, their parents or their grandparents. Look at how much better I am or my generation is than yours. 
And look at the comparison, look at the contrast and, and look at how much pain I can, I can bear up. Load it on more and I'll show you how great I am, how much I can, I can suffer. And it's a really weird view. Like, it's like, it's not, that's not the right kind of pleasure. It's not the joy that's fitting for giving or yielding or being poor in spirit and trusting God. It's some kind of a weird manipulative thing. I, uh, then here's, here's the final route. And this is, I think, maybe the most important. American Christianity, we run away because we think it's, it's just costly without any benefit. It's pointless. Or we do this and we say, you know what? It, it might have been cool for Paul to suffer and know Christ more that way, but I really don't like to suffer. Um, so I'm not going to choose that route. I'm going to choose a different route. Uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go this way, and, and it'll work really well. I'll just, I'm pretty good at this. I'll, I'll find the easy way. I won't suffer, and I'll know Christ really well. Like, I'm going to hang out with him, and he likes me a lot. I'm likable, um, and, and we're going to be buds. And I'm not going to go to church because, you know, like, it's in the way, and it's not really fun. And I'm just going to hang out and, and love Christ myself because that's kind of cool and that's what I want. That's what I like. feels pretty good. And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kind of pick and choose and that'll work for me. And it's, it's a ridiculous and very immature view of Christianity. I have a friend that's been all over Facebook this week who should know better. He's been bragging about being down on church and, you know, forget church and Eastern, forget this, forget that. I'm going to do it myself and, and it's so much better that way. And it's really immature in the sense that if you're really spending time by yourself, really listening to God, you'd hear God say, yeah, uh, the church was my plan. I actually want you to go. See, it's, I, I like it when a lot of people submit to each other and learn to work it out. It's kind of like family, you know? I mean, Thanksgiving, like, of course, you could go eat McDonald's by yourself, but you kind of need to do it with family. It's just, I like church, you know? So maybe you should go if, you know? I mean, it's a really weird, immature way that we kind of create our own Christianity and we don't really listen to what God wants, or says, or cares about. There's a race marked out for us. Jesus says, you will suffer in my name. He said that to his disciples. It's pretty exciting. <laughs> I suffered, you're gonna suffer. Hey, but it's okay, trust me. But we're kind of like, ah, oh, no, Jesus, you just didn't understand. Uh, we're Americans, we know how to fix everything. We, you had a broken view of Christianity, we can do a much better view. Um, we just get the joy without the suffering. <laughs> My kids, it's funny, I'm a pastor, so my kids will often tell me, Dad, we hate church. It's a really weird thing to hear from your kids, like, oh, wow, I hope nobody else hears this. <laughs> um, you know what I say to my kids? This might shock you, but it's very, very logical. You know what I say to my kids? Um, do you think you're the only ones? <laughs> nobody likes church. We don't go to church because we like it. We go to church to suffer. Like, just to the race. It's faith. It's not, I mean, there's something very true in that. We don't, we don't value family because it always pads us. We value it because it's right. We don't go to church because it's always better than going to the movies. Go to church because it's right. 
And because there's a benefit that comes from it when we submit to each other, this encouragement that, that comes and the joy that comes and the fellowship that, that's so meaningful, so necessary, that doesn't come when we're all just playing our own card and being selfish. I mean, I, I've never met a coach that would listen to a, a defensive back, tell him, look, I don't need to go to the huddle. I'll just cover my receiver. I'm going to do my own thing. It's all about me and this receiver. Look, it wastes energy for me to walk to the huddle. Don't bother me with that. It's not fun. I don't like the huddle. And the coach would be like, okay, you don't get, you know, you don't get it. Like, this is, okay, we're, we're playing football here, and it's a team thing, and there's communication, and they need you there. It's like, I, don't, I mean, I can't even explain it. You gotta, you gotta be in the huddle. Um, I uh, was reading a magazine yesterday, old time magazine, just flipping through it, and and it had this stat on um, hap, on laughter, and it said that that we're thirty times more likely to laugh in social settings than when we're by ourselves. You know, like we were we were made for fellowship, for community, for social, like for each other, right? I mean, thirty times more likely to laugh social settings. It's kind of I started. Think about it. It's kind of funny. Like, uh, you know, I mean, imagine telling yourself a joke like, oh, I haven't heard that one yet. You know, uh, <laughs> uh, knock, knock. Who's there? Me. <laughs> I mean, I'm here. Oh, it's pretty funny. You know, like, it's just, in church is the same way. Like, the value of nurture and, and encouragement and fellowship and togetherness and celebration and all these things are, are made so much greater by being here. And so, in some sense, church is an example of God asking us to do something that's not always super fun, but it's meaningful. And when we trust Him, when we walk by faith, God always rewards us and shows us that His plan is a good plan. It's the best plan. And this... This weird view of, I'm just going to always get what I want. What do we call it? If I, if, if I was doing that with my kids, okay, I'll just, I'll buy you everything you always want. No, if you don't want to do your chores, you don't have to. If you want to hit your sister, okay, I guess you wanted to. Like, um, well, if it, if it makes you happy, if I always raise my kids that way, what would you say of me as a parent? I'm spoiling them. I'm spoiling them. So when... When we shake it all out, we realize the world is a bad place when, when, you really, when you really understand it because you can't spank grandma, you know, and, and we all get spoiled and here we are in America, right? Um, no, but I mean, th I mean, think about this. With, with our kids, it's bad and it's spoiling them. They need to learn that, that, that good things come to those who wait, that when you work for something, there's a payoff, that, that things cost in life. That sometimes you have to make sacrifices. And some things, sometimes it's better to give than receive. And that, that you have to, to submit to others because other people's interests matter too. And, and with kids, we get that. So then all of a sudden we come here and I got my friend all over Facebook saying, yeah, I'm just going to do it all my way. I'm super spiritual. I'm bragging to all the people on Facebook. That's like 500 quasi-friends, you know, and... And all I want to do is email them back, but it's not fair because I'm a pastor and it would feel like too much of a slam. But I just want to email them back and be like, look, you sound like my, my five-year-old. I actually don't have a five-year-old. My four-year-old. Um, you sound like my four-year-old. I'm just going to choose my way all the time and, and that's really cool and I'm a really good Christian. We, we do that, don't we? 
mean, what's kind of going on there? I mean, don't, don't we see it for what it is? How can we nurture or affirm that? How can we settle ourselves in that and baptize it and think that that's somehow good, that, you know, I'm just going to do everything the way I want, and, and that's okay. And here's the thing. The reason we're able to do it so well is because we do that in life anyways. You know how many times I hear in a week, whatever makes you happy? We have so trained ourselves in this society to just do what makes you feel happy, not what's best, not what's ultimately going to lead to the greatest good, not what's mature. We just look at everyone and over coffee, ah, whatever makes you happy. Why? Because that's the right thing to say if you're a good American. And we just give people permission to be four-year-olds all the time. And so then when it comes to church, well, guess what? It's no different. It's no different. It's really sad because there's nothing of faith in that. The righteous will walk not by sight, but by faith. They're going to trust God so much that they do the stupid. They, They will be last by choice knowing that God will honor that. They will give away their life knowing that he'll give it back to them. They will trust that if they die to self, they will be raised with Christ. They will trust that that's a good shepherd, that they don't have to look out for number one, that God will take care of them, that Christ will take care of you. This is so illogical, but we do it. Why? Because we have faith. And if we go a different way and just pop out and say, I'm going to go a different way, what is at the heart of that? It's unbelief. It's lack of faith. It's, it's not trusting God. So I didn't read this in the first service, but I, I think it ties in right now. So just turn to Hebrews chapter three and you gotta, you gotta if you get anything this morning, get this distinction. It's, it's crucial to our understanding of what's going on here. Chapter three of Hebrews, beginning in verse seven, it says this. So as the Holy Spirit says, and it's quoting Isaiah, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion during the time of testing in the desert. It's when God was talking about the Israelites. They go into the desert, and guess what? It's hard. It's painful. And in this time of testing, this difficult time, they hardened their hearts. It was in a time of rebellion where your fathers tested and tried me and for 40 years saw what I did. And that is why I was angry with that generation. And I said, their hearts are always going astray. And they have not known my ways. What is God's ways? The author and perfecter of the faith. Early Christianity wasn't known as Christianity. It was known as followers of the way, capital W, because Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and life. It was known as followers of the way. To be a Christian meant what? That you were going to follow Christ in this path, this way that he had created and shown and perfected, and that we were going to fix our eyes on him, that he would lead us in the way that he went, and that we would have to have the same faith in God that he had, and we'd have to want that same joy that he wanted and their hearts are always going astray, and they have not known my ways. So I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. You, you weren't willing to follow here. Guess what? This goes with this. Goodness 
and joy and peace goes with this. That's why Paul says the fruit of the Spirit, when you walk and submit in the Spirit, the fruit of that, the outgrowth of that is what? Love, joy, peace, patience. All of the goodness that we really hunger for in life anyways. So I declared on oath in my anger they will never enter my rest because the rest was the consummation of obedience, the obedience that they didn't have. So listen to this now. See to it, brothers, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God, but encourage one another daily as long as it is called today so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. And we have come to share in Christ if we hold firmly till the end the confidence we had at first. Okay, see to it that nobody has a sinful, unbelieving heart. That's one and the same. A sinful heart is the same as an unbelieving heart. Do you guys understand what the heart of sin is? In this kind of Christianity where it's all about gymnastics, okay, what is the essence of sin? The essence of sin is the action you cheated on that test. You slandered that person. Want to know what the actual essence of sin is? You slandered that person because you didn't trust God. God said, if you suffer under that and you don't retaliate and you, and you follow in the way I've marked out for you, I will bless you. And, and, and you said, you know what? Not good enough. And he slandered that person. And the essence of that sin wasn't the action. It's what was going on in your heart that you didn't really trust God. You weren't w- really willing to follow his ways. So when we don't get this, we think, Faith is about doing stupid stuff and sin is about doing the wrong things. When we really understand what Christ laid out here when he created this path of faith, it's, it's believing, it's trusting, and it's following the ways of God, that that's what's in our heart. So it says, see to it that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God but here's where we need each other. But encourage one another daily because it's tough. It's difficult, man. There's a, a marathon here and we need each other to come along and support and encourage and nourish and speak words of life into us. We need that. So encourage one another daily as long as it is called today so that none of you will be hardened, lose heart and turn away like we read about later. So it goes on and says this, Who were they that heard and rebelled? Who were were they not all those that Moses led out of Egypt? So there's all these Israelites in the desert. They heard, they rebelled. It's the people that Moses led out of Egypt. That means they saw the power of God. It says this, "With with whom was God angry for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the desert? The same group of people. And to whom did God swear that they would never enter his rest, if not to those who disobeyed? So we see that they were not able to enter because of their unbelief. Who was it that was not able to enter? Those that sinned. Ah, so we see that the reason they were not able to enter the land and have the promise of God, the promised land, was those that had a... Did you guys hear that word? 
We see that it was that they were not able to enter because of their unbelief. The essence of sin, brothers and sisters, is unbelief, lack of faith. The essence of righteousness, and this is why Paul says it in, in Romans, your, your faith is, is reckoned unto you, is considered unto you as righteousness. It's not your actions, but it's the trust that you put in God that he understands this faith, not the roundabout, but the, the faith that God will make good on his promises. I was drawing that wrong with my hands. Okay, so let's boil this all down. For the joy set before him, our Savior endured the cross. He died and rose again so that we would be able to have this same relationship with God, be able to, to obey, to follow, to trust, and to know God, to, to follow this, this path marked out for us, knowing that, that it's a good, wise investment, that if we keep our, our eyes on Christ, it will show us that all of this labor is not in vain, that all of this suffering has an answer, that there's a joy that we're promised, that he will be with us the whole while, making it easier than it ought to be, like making it lighter than what we think it could be that this is all good and his resurrection on Easter Sunday when we celebrate that is so worth celebrating. Why? <laughs> because now we know that it's true. That, that we can trust when we feel like doubting, when we feel like wavering, we can look to Christ and go, no, he rose from the dead. It is true, it is right, it is good, it is whole. He is risen. I can follow him, I can celebrate this. I'm no lo longer naked, blind, sick, or poor. I'm whole, I'm complete, I'm forgiven, I'm saved. I now have a joy that I couldn't have had when I lived in darkness. When there was no hope, when God was far off and now God is close. And so now I get to do what some legalists would think is the most selfish thing in the world. I get to get excited about the joy set before me. I get to suffer not in vain. I get to be mature and act mature and live out a life of obedience not in vain, but the whole while knowing that God is a father that's going to take care of me. He's going to bless me. He's going to honor me. He's going to reward me. And that this is all so good and exciting. Let me read to you just a quote from Philip Yancey. And then we're done. We're going to see a little movie clip. And the worship team is going to come back up. By the way, this morning is the first of a five-part series called Give Your Life Away. At first it's like, well, you know, stop trying to take my life. Just a church trying to take my life again. Um, I don't like that. Bad babysitter, you know. Um, but I talk to guys everywhere that have climbed the mountain in business and money and everything else. And you know what they're all dying for? Something worth giving their life away to. We're all starved for meaning. We all want to invest our time into something bigger than ourselves. We really want to give our life away. So what we don't realize is like what we're made for, we're created for something other than ourselves. We want to give our life away. So we're going to talk about that for five weeks. I saw a little thing on a blog this week. It was a picture of a church, one of those church signs. And it said this, no bunny loves you like Jesus. Um, I just thought that was really funny. But the bunny analogy stuck with me. And I was like, you know what? It's kind of like we need to realize it's like being thrown in the, the briar patch. What the world thinks is suffering pointlessly is like the brer rabbit 
saying, oh, don't throw me in the briar patch, but that's actually home. It's actually what we were created for. Oh, don't take my life away, but you know what? It's actually what I was made for. It's actually home. It's actually where it's all going to work, and I can live for something bigger than myself and know the fellowship of the Spirit that's working in and through me, and I'm a part of God's will, and I'm pleasing Him. I, I long for that. And most of you guys in this room that have spent half your life building empires of your own are at a point where you're like, man, I long for that too. I really want to do something more meaningful with my life than just serving myself as a pharaoh. Um, so we're doing this series. There's a book out there. We've already sold like 70 copies after the first service, but it's, it's called A Call to Die. And as a church, we're just going to read through this. The small groups are going to go through this. Everyone's going to go through this. And it's just methodically trying to help us gain the habits to live this thing out in faith, this, this Christian life, this followers of the way kind of thing that we're in, involved in. And so after the service, I'd love for a bunch of you to pick this up. If we sell out, they're going to have them next week or they're going to have them at the Kilns bookstore. But um, it's kind of ironic. Hey, everybody, get excited. Um, we're going to spend five weeks giving our life away. But if we really understand the faith that Christ authored, that Christ perfected, maybe we can get excited because there's joy on the back end of that. Phil Yancey says this, to believe in future rewards is to believe that the long arm of the Lord bends toward justice, to believe that one day the proud will be overthrown and the humble raised up and the hungry filled with good things. Like a bell tolling from another world, Jesus' promises of rewards proclaims that no matter how things appear, there is no foundation in evil, only in good. Jesus said, you are naked, you are blind, you are poor. If you only knew that, you would come to me and you would invite me in and I would make you rich. I would take care of you because I'm a good shepherd. This morning we celebrate the resurrection of Christ because it's a pretty cool thing to be set free. Father, we just commit this morning to you. We celebrate your son, the risen Christ. We thank you for that gift. We thank you for being a redeemer, God. We want to give you praise this morning. In Christ's name.